You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey, everybody. This is the Deeper Magic. I am Peter, and I'm here with my daughter, Anna. Say hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. <laughs> it's nice see to see you. you catching on. It's I funny. I am catching on. It's been a couple of weeks since we had a chance to do this. I was in Scotland again for about eight or nine days and really just had a, a pretty amazing experience in a number of levels. I know we're going to talk in a, in a future episode coming up about uh, mental health and trauma and Yes. And during my time on sabbatical, it was just it's just been interesting that some of the events that I think I've long buried from my youth uh, that that had some trauma associated with them, you know, there's all of a sudden they're emerging in my life again mm-hmm. in in new and fresh ways. So it's been an interesting time looking forward to that uh, podcast that we do. I think we'll invite Lily uh, back on for part mm-hmm. of that as well. And you are finishing up your school season, right? I You've mean, got a couple of weeks left, maybe. Yeah, I've got about a month left, um, and I am. I'm skipping out halfway through my finals week to go to Scotland, theoretically. Um, I just have to convince my professor to let me do that. But two of my three finals are essays, so that should not really be an issue. Um, the joys of being an English major is that I don't have actual like exams. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So I'm in the last, what, three, four weeks of class now, and everybody, like, everybody can kind of feel it. Um, not much productivity is happening in class right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's mostly just us like hanging out and doing whatever. How many? So let's just say for the sake of argument, I skipped mm-hmm. a lot of classes. I was an L ed major yeah. and, I, and I skipped most of my elementary classes just because I was terrible at them. There's no way I should have ever been in the classroom. But how many classes have you skipped this semester? Um, Not many. You are so responsible. No, it's, it's not that. Um, because fall semester, I skipped a lot of classes, especially in the second half of the semester. Yep. Um, but that was with like careful math of how many classes I could skip before missing quizzes or things would start to affect my grade. Um, but one of my professors has an attendance policy where um, you get to miss three classes, excused or unexcused. And then for every class after that that you miss, your final grade goes down 5%. <laughs> and so I have missed three classes this semester, and I'm not missing anymore um, because I'm very over university, but I do still care about my GPA. Yeah, indeed. So. Well, as a professor, it's a terrible strategic move to say how many you can, how many unexcused absences you can have because students mm-hmm. like you take advantage of every last one of those, yes. or excused absences, I should say. So mm-hmm. I... Well, we've got a couple of guests in our studio here that we should introduce in just a moment. We're going to talk a little bit about leadership today, Mm -hmm. Uh, sacred leadership, which I don't for sure even know entirely what we mean by sacred leadership. It'll be fun to talk about it. I do. But I'm curious. You're theoretically in sacred leadership. Am I really? I don't know. I I mean, you teach at a Christian uh, school. Yeah. Gave a sermon yesterday. I suppose I do some of that kind of stuff. So... um, what would you be looking for in because you're a bit rogue, like you're you're. Let's just say that you have a little bit of an independent streak. I I don't know if this is news really? to you. I don't know if this is news <laughs> to you, but yeah, a bit of it, which is which has been wonderful. Do you mm-hmm. can you see yourself actually willingly yielding or uh, or working underneath somebody else's leadership? And if so, what would be the quality you'd be looking for in a leader? Especially in a spiritual sense. Like, who, yeah. who would you trust? I mean, so many of our spiritual leaders that we see, the visible kinds of people, tend to be the charismatic or the operationally gifted people that can build organizations. But mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean they're the trustworthy leaders that we want to work under. Would Is there somebody that you would say, you know what? I'm willing to actually be shepherded by you. 
Hmm. Okay. Um. Hmm. Yeah. So I think I would answer that in two different parts in terms of like leadership in general. One of my Oh, I have a lot of examples that I could pull from, but all of them are from media and very few of them are from my real life, um, which is very upsetting on a lot of levels. <laughs> Wait, but, so these are not real people? This is no, like Chris, but Chris I'm like, Pratt oh, or somebody? Like, no. So, um, but. <laughs> give me one. Like, okay, a fictional character you get, you under get to whom guess you would work. where my top Wa- reference is going to come from. Walking Dead. No, that's my second. Um... So one of those Stevie Water books that you read. Yeah, that one. Okay, that one. Okay, so who is so who is that? Maggie, what's her name? Maggie Steve Otter. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but I can if, let's shake it up a little bit, and I'll go with The Walking Dead. Okay. Um, there is the leadership in The Walking Dead of the like main group of characters changes over the seasons, like a lot of different. Don't times. Don't be a spoiler. I'm. I'm no, we haven't even finished the finale asked. of season you one. Asked. But don't wreck it. I'm not. It's okay. okay. I, um. So we have. The main, the main guy who is generally agreed upon to be the leader, people tend to turn to him. And also he just like has that gravity about him that mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. are like, you seem to know what's going on. You seem like you're going to get us all through this. Sure, we'll follow you. Um, but throughout the show, as characters come in and out of light and dark arcs, which is one of my favorite things about the show, is that you will have characters who have really dark arcs for like six seasons and then they come back and will be one of the most powerful like forces of light on the show but it's just it's such a brilliant exploration of humanity and so as he comes in and out of his dark arcs he also comes in and out of leadership and other people will come up to balance him and take that place of leadership as he needs to like sort out his own stuff and there are definitely times when he is in a position of leadership when he shouldn't be and things go wrong because of it Um, and so I would say in that instance, the thing that I have loved watching in how they lead and, and Caleb and I have talked a lot about this as we've been watching the show is somebody will say or do something and we'll be like, Ooh, they shouldn't be leading right now. And it usually comes down to whether or not they're making the decision on their own Mm. and whether or not they're making that decision out of fear. Um, and those are kind of the two big things in in The Walking Dead in particular um, is when somebody is making like decisions for the whole community on their own without listening to the rest of the community. Right. And when people are making those decisions out of fear and out of a desire to protect um, rather than <coughs> like out of a desire to do what is right or out of a desire to help other people. Um and so, we, and we've been seeing that a lot in the show right now, where they are facing this question of, do we do the right thing and like the quote unquote human thing, or do we do the smart thing and protect our own? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I think that's probably one of my favorite examples of like leadership right now in terms of sacred leadership. Well, why don't, why don't we why don't we yeah. pause that for just a second? Because I bet we're going to get it teased out in the conversation with our guests. Maybe we mm-hmm. just bring them in at this point because of some thoughts. I'm unusually so grateful for the leadership that I work under right now. Mm. And and in 52 years, it's it's I I think we've all worked under leaders that have been less than ideal mm-hmm. and probably demonstrate some of the characteristics you describe about working out of fear or alone or or whatever it is. And and I'm not in that situation right now, which feels really good. But I think there's a lot we can learn about it. And 
we'd have to bring in some of our favorite people at yes. this point in time. Um, so first, uh, why don't we why don't we bring uh, Gruntled in, <laughs> into the show? This is uh, this is I can mute you. This I is have our friend, the board. This in is front our friend me. Noah Ullman. Uh, Noah is a is a itinerant rabbi, a teacher, speaker. He's been working. Uh, with us this weekend, it's been really fun, and uh, he and the other guests we'll introduce in just a second have been with us before. But no, good to see you. Good to see you, Jeff. <laughs> you you love bringing your. It, you must have sort of suppressed mm. desires to be an NPR radio host. I think it stems from my childhood. Yeah, where. You should come yeah, back um, on for our episode about trauma. Yeah, oh, we'll talk about that. Because clearly, NPR <laughs> is is definitely in your future. I think the number of stories as a kid uh, growing up that started with, I heard on NPR today. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I, that was that was like the, Just the prefix to almost. Into you. That's yeah, really and funny. so it's uh, yeah, so yes, uh, but no, um, it's it's good to be back. Yeah, thank you. Lovely thank to have you. you. And I think the thank other you. person here, maybe the only person I know that has more potential modifying titles associated with her name <laughs> than I do. Because sometimes my favorite Please, male that I get... Somebody needs yeah, to, to was, take that spot. So when I when I get him some sort of male, it's so funny to me. Mm-hmm. When it's like Reverend Pastor Dr. Kapsner, it just, it makes me yeah. laugh. It makes me just chuckle because I'm just Pete, you yeah. know, at the oh, end of the day. Sure. But it's so fun to be in studio with somebody who has even one additional modifying title mm-hmm. uh, in her name. So I think we understand her to be Aunt... Auntie Reverend... Reverend Pastor, Pastor Rabbi, Rabbi Holly. Holly. Hi, Holly. <laughs> Hello. It's great to see you again. Good to see you guys, too. Thank you for having me back. For sure. And we understand you two are married. We are. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. I'm Holly's husband. You are Holly's. Yes. 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 No, you're Holly's husband. When what You got married in Ireland almost a year ago, right? Very good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What good was memory. it? Dang, that's crazy. Uh, June 15th. I can't believe it's been that long and that short mm-hmm. all at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. And you, you've had a busy week of teaching the two of you. It seems yeah. anyway, outside looking in, or is that not true? Oh, no, it's true. Um, yeah, yes. so, so just give us a little sense of what, where you've been in the last week, the kind of rooms you've been teaching in and what's been happening. Absolutely. So we drove down uh, Thursday of last week. We had a study Thursday evening. Um, that was in this house? Mm-hmm. No, that was mm-hmm. in my Friday sister's. Was, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, at my sister's house. Um, so a study, it was kind of a, a, a different... A, Broad group of people, different backgrounds, different places uh, in life. And then we had a study here um, on Friday night. Uh, Saturday, we had a study with kind of a worship collective from a church. Um, and that was an all-day study uh, from 9 to 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on Sunday, um, we had a study from 2 to 5 and 6 to 9. The 6 to 9 was kind of a family uh, group of study, and it was just lovely. Oh, man, we had just a mess of, uh, of kids really here fun. last night. It was so yeah. fun. <laughs> Was I mean, their insights? Like it's it's one of the things that I think is um when we talk about sacred leadership, you know, mm-hmm. the, in this whole conversation, I think one of the things that and and you know Jesus talks about this throughout the New Testament as well, you know, being as a small child or being childlike, and we talk about that, and I think sometimes we think so we're just strictly talking like innocence or maybe even a dimension of of like a, a holy naivete or something like that, and I think okay, fair. There's also I think an aspect of um kids see things and they understand things and they get things and they can engage in conversations that I think sometimes we would assume are far beyond the years that we would associate with they could have Mm -hmm. these conversations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it is not beyond the possibility for a nine-year-old or 11-year-old or a 13-year-old to be talking about things that we would more associate with people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. They are in those conversations. They are having those thoughts. And when I think they're given the space to really engage in those conversations with adults, 
it allows for such a gorgeous thing to come forth and really, I think, for growth to happen that much earlier and sooner. And not to say that that should be the only or primary thing that we're all looking at. And they're thinking about things like seasons of change and yeah. growth and transformation and difficult choices. And how do I know if it's a time to maybe stick with a friend or maybe I'm being asked to release them? And and how do I walk with God in that? And how do I help them in their walk with the Lord and with their family? And, mm-hmm. and kids are thinking about these things. It's not like this just poof happens when we're 30 or right. something or right, right. 25 or when we graduate from college or go to like, th- this is happening so much earlier. And I think when we invite people into that space, then these conversations happen. And then I think it gives kids so many more tools that they can then utilize when they're navigating life and they're not, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, the conversations, things that are coming forth last night were just stunning. I mean, it yeah. was truly. Cool. Yeah. Well, and just about that and having kids in the room and the whole thing is that, um, dad, you and I have talked about this a little bit, that one of the most significant things for me uh, growing up was that I felt like I was always taken seriously by you and mom. I was always, whatever I had to say was was taken seriously and was considered and treated with the same weight as most people would only like see adults um yeah and so to sit in that room and then watch all of those kids who some of them I have known since they were babies literally is and and to watch them be taken seriously and to realize that they're being taken seriously was such a cool yeah, it was such a cool moment to be in the room with them and watch them kind of grow in their confidence with asking questions and things. Yeah, and how I was just in, I don't know for you, Holly. Uh, you've been in the church for a number of years too, like me. And when I think about the studying the Word in many church environments in which I've been, let's just say I didn't look forward to that maybe twenty-five minute period of time of Bible study where we had come with our pre-filled in answers. Mm-hmm. And first of all, children would have never been in the room, number one. And, and number two, there wasn't necessarily this sort of sense of open dialogue and going where the room is. It's The idea of studying scripture for three hours together with some of the kids as young as 10 years old in the room yesterday, That I, I do not know other environments that I've been in in church settings where that is something that's the case. Did you have any of that kind of thing? You know, for myself, I... Um being raised in the Catholic Church, I would attend CCD or now yeah. they call it Faith Formation on Wednesday nights. Yep, for um, sure. And so, like, I remember going in, and you had a specific age group that you were put with. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, we had our workbooks, and and to your point, very much there was a fill in the blank of like, what is you know? And I think there was also something that I um, had noticed was that the stories in the scriptures were very sanitized when they were delivered to children. <laughs> like, yep. um, if we look at the idea of Jonah, or not Jonah, uh, Noah. Noah is, well, Jonah as well, honestly. Um, they, both are, they, are, they both are incredibly um, brutal passages. If you're really looking at what is the reality that we're, that we're reading on the page, it's incredibly brutal. Um, it's not just giraffes and rainbows when it, it comes to, to Noah. Right. It's not just like every pair on a boat, it's lovely. Like, a <laughs> A lot of people died, and there were a lot of bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I Noah and I have talked like the story of Noah's Ark would make an excellent horror film. Yeah, yeah, it um, totally right. would. You're right. But it's it's the idea of that's not that's not how it's presented mm-hmm. um, to children. And so um, I think as well to have 
the ability and not not that I would ever want to like frighten a child in a study. That's not mm-hmm. not what I'm saying, but the idea of of um very much to your point Anna of like being taken seriously and inviting them into a space at a certain point when it says like this is the real story. Um, and I trust your ability to hold that and I trust your ability because that's important mm-hmm. because if they yeah. start with a sanitized the other thing is we never know where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, we never know if they'll continue on or not. And so is it that they only got the sanitized version that's missing, you know, 75% of the content right. and that's what they leave with? Or do they get, you know, something more that they can build on? Yeah. You had something a second ago, Noah. Well, and just, okay, and that exact thing. And then thinking about the study last night, like the the, the scene last night, right? We're going to study from six to nine. There's 20 plus people, adults and kids, you know, uh, uh, half the room is between the ages of 10 and 16. Yeah. 17 sure. years old is half the room of, of 20 plus people. Okay. And these kids, you know, we take one bathroom break halfway through for 10 or 12 minutes. And then when we're coming back from bathroom break and, and I'm trying to gather everyone to come back and sit down in the room, the kids all sit down. It was adults that were the ones who took the longest to come <laughs> back and sit down. I know, I know. That, that was actually, and then, you know, it's a school night. Uh, it's 8.45 and I ask, are people up for doing one more thing? And a few adults kind of go, well, maybe, uh, should we check? And the kids are like, yeah, let, like, let's, let's do one more. They for a long time. And it was just, you know, the idea that, well, kids don't have the attention span or that we have to only talk about these things or we can't have that conversation. You know, to your point about Noah, Holly, this exact, this conversation, it was a group, um, it was a, it was a confirmation youths from two different Lutheran churches and I threw out, uh, well, people shared some words. I threw out a few options and the room chose Noah. So we're talking about Noah and I'm, it's confirmation youth. And so they're ranging in age from, you know, 12 to 14, 15, but we're not just talking about a rainbow and animals on a boat. We're talking about the death and destruction of the flood. And I'm not, again, not trying to scare people. Also though, sometimes people ask, oh, when you do it with kids, do you have to, you know, and it's like, okay, while there are maybe a few subjects we're not going to talk about with children because, Mm -hmm. okay, the vast majority of things, like, no, if, if it says that people died in a flood, we're not going to say that people didn't die in a flood. <laughs> right. yeah. Kids know these things. They're aware. They're aware if there's a flood and everything is raining and it's gone, something happened before the rainbow came and the animals come off the boat. Like, mm-hmm. the kids kids are, they, they think much more critically than I think we give them credit for. And it's where to not utterly sanitize it to not scrub it all up and make it look nice and to have an honest conversation because I think kids know when they're being treated differently. They know when adults are modifying their behavior. They know when they're leaving things out and they know when they're not being taken seriously. Kids know. So, and then um, that ties into your question about spiritual leadership is that my, the vast majority of my experiences with spiritual leadership has been that I'm not taken seriously and things are sanitized for me and and I know every time I, when somebody looks at me and they're talking to me and they're doing it from that kind of Western Americanized Christian culture and, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, you are talking to me as though you are inv- very invested in what I have to say, as though you really care about like what answers I'm giving or where I'm at in my life. But I know that actually you're just asking because you want me to be invested in your community. You're not actually invested in me. And you just know that if you act like you are invested in me long enough, then I will become invested in your community. 
And it, it's stuff like that where I'm like, oh, you're not taking me seriously. You actually do not care what is going on in my life. You just want me to follow you. Um, and and then it's about the leader and not about the people following. Mm-hmm. And that has been my experience, which is why like part of my answer about spiritual leadership was going to be like, I actually don't know what spiritual leadership looks like. Mm-hmm. That is not something that I have really experienced in my life. And I I have had people... Like, I've had individual people where I've been like, oh, you have been really instrumental in my faith journey. And I know that you have played that role in a lot of other people's lives. But I have never been part of a faith community that has looked towards a leader of some kind that I have felt really any kind of confidence mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. And let's, yeah, so let's talk about that in, in a minute. I want to go back to what you were saying, uh, Anna, and then Noah and Holly, as you guys were talking about the room yesterday. I think for people that are listening that maybe are not entirely familiar with the setup, uh, that you arrived, the, the two of you arrived uh, roughly 10 minutes before six last night, uh, mm-hmm. and um, the room was already almost sitting down in anticipation of this. And, mm-hmm. and it was, as you said, 20 plus people, half of which were under the age of 16. And again, the idea that you would say, we're going to study scripture for three hours together would be absolute anathema to just mm-hmm. about any faith organization of setting something up like that. You just, uh, all of your research would suggest that you've got to be as as quick as possible with the information and just get them out of Dodge and get, get some donuts or something. But there's, uh, we ended up with this beautiful three-hour experience where you, the two of you opened up the room and said, I want every person in the room to just share a word, a sentence, a phrase, something that seems to be on your heart, you've been wrestling with, puzzling with. And everybody in the room, other than one person, felt the entire freedom to share some of those things. And and that from there began to emerge, you know, I have been wrestling with what it means to grow or to change. There was comments in the room. I don't even know for sure if there's eternity. And if there is, what's the point? And it just, the freedom in the first 15 minutes of opening up in the room and taking them seriously about what is going on in their life, because God is interacting with them, then opened up your decisions to say, all right, we have three different passages of scripture that we could study that could sort of address what's in the room. And then we all have the fun of voting mm-hmm. on that. And and you guys are so brutal with the with the voting process because it's, I mean, it, it really is just mob rule. Whoever whoever wins the vote <laughs> is the passage we're going to. That's I would like it noted that's though that last fair. night Noah tried to say that you get one vote I overall. I know. And like four we different rebelled. people, you and I yeah. in particular, were we like, almost that is him. wrong. Yeah, we almost chucked that him right off incorrect. the vote. Yeah. And, and in, in the note of spiritual leadership, you took that feedback from the people <laughs> and you changed it. And then we you all did. got four votes per passage. Yeah, your, Thank your you, Yelp reviews were going to be pretty low. If, if we So then we just studied that passage in a variety of ways. But the, the reason why I sort of set that context is then at about 9.15, I was sitting with one of the parents of one of the young people in the room. And he, you could just see the energy coming from him about what had just happened. And he said, this is what Sabbath should be about. This is what yeah. studying scripture should look like. But then, and I have a feeling many, 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 many parents and the vast majority of parents and grandparents who might want to help to create space for that kind of reality for their own kids lead in that way. I know he felt this way. And even me as a seminary trained pastor who has all these fancy letters, I'm not sure I could... 
I, I have enough of the biblical background and capacity that the two of you are demonstrating to be able to run a room like that for three hours. And so I'm thinking about all the parents and grandparents that are listening that would love nothing more than to have their kids study scripture this way, but basically are beholden to have to maybe buy some set of curriculum from a store, get it downloaded off a website, like whatever it looks like. Are there reliable pathways, knowing that it doesn't happen overnight, where somebody can start getting into the word in such a way that they can lead a room in this way? You know the question? Like, I, mean, mm-hmm. I know it's not going to happen tomorrow if somebody wants to do it, but I think people feel very disempowered. Maybe just one more quick comment. As I spoke in a church yesterday, and just even getting a little bit into the Greek language uh, around a passage from Ephesians 5 just cracked the entire thing open for the body. And at the end of the day, does it take some work? Yes, but it's accessible to people. I mean, you don't have to have the fancy letters to create this kind of space. So it's kind of an answer to your question. Um, for myself, I, I'm only familiar with one pathway, which would be um, the website scripture, the number four, and then all uh, dot com, which is the Hebrew and Greek interlinear Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you wanted to look at like the Hebrew or the Greek, that does that does exist. Um, but I think something Noah a while back was talking about when uh, Jesus says to to come to God like little children, and and I think another element of it that was very um, very poignant in the room last night, and, and an element of of what it means to be childlike is a level of curiosity. Yeah, um, and to what Anna was saying about being taken seriously is I don't think often adults um, are willing to hold the curiosity when it comes to them of mm-hmm. like. The question of like, why? Why, you know, if this happened, but why? Mm -hmm. But where? But why did he say that, you know? Um, And I think in that space, one thing that I would encourage, pathway or not, is that if you, you know, as a parent or as a grandparent or or just as a a guardian, however it it ends up being, you know, if you have this child come to you and and they're curious and they want to know and they want to study and you're kind of looking and and it's, you know, like, well, I don't don't know. Um, Great. Then it's curiosity for both of you. Mm, Study together. Love that. Love that. Yeah. You know, say I, I, you know, you're right. I don't know. Do you want to get some books on Greek? Do you want to, like, let's take a look. Let's grab a study Bible and dig in. You know, and I think that in itself, as kind of in, in the sense of, of of sacred leadership, something that I appreciate in a sacred leader mm-hmm. is the ability to respond to a question with "I don't know." Yeah, it gives you such credibility, doesn't it? Or it gives if you're working under that leader and they say, I don't know, then when that later also simultaneously says something that seems to be the product of wisdom and study and experience, you trust that more because you know they're not playing some game of pretend because they were simultaneously willing to say, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. and you can you can smell it when you say, when you, when you ask a question and they come up with an answer and you're like, you have no idea what you just said, do you? You, you don't know what you're talking about. You can tell every single time. And I've seen it happen in your classroom where somebody will ask you a question and you say, I don't know. And instead of losing credibility, which I think is what so many leaders are really afraid of, it actually gives you so much more credibility because then you're in it with them. You're not this like removed figure. And and I will say early in my teaching career, I did not feel the comfort of saying, I don't know. I think I felt, and this is not right, but I just remember feeling that pressure of, you have some letters after your name. You're, we expect you to know. And if I'm going to be able to advance in my career or all of the other baloney that like are just the wrong underpinnings for being a spiritual leader, but are actually present for so many spiritual leaders, I think, and saying 
that I have to be the one who leads the way. I have to be the one who can sort of stand with courage. I have to be this, I have to be that. And so you, you end up in this weird place of feeling like you can't say, I don't know, but that's a deficiency in you and in how we think about leadership, I think. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, we must be married because I literally, those are some of the exact same <laughs> thoughts. That you said. I'm, I'm glad like, you oh sorted my. that out. Yeah. We, we like, think you're married too. So, yes. <laughs> it I've been watched weird. it happen a bunch of times last night where one of you would be like, oh, this thing. And the other person would be like, yeah, but neither of you said anything <laughs> to each other. And I was like, yeah, that's yeah. good. And I think a clear indication that you are married is before we even started this podcast, Noah, you set up this beautiful bowl of chips. Yes. That was, that was, it was the, <laughs> it was the correct proportion of tortilla corn chips to potato chips. And, sorry, I, and I think Holly. you even actually counted them out from a portion standpoint and you set the bowl down. And and, and what happened, Anna? Uh, <laughs> Holly, would you like to say? <laughs> you did the right thing, Holly. Oh, I mean, the you shame. Just, you just, you just, you just you <laughs> oh, no, this it's is, the this glory. This is what spouses do. I can, I can think of no circumstance in which I set down a bowl of chips next to Holly that she didn't at least have a few. <sighs> I ate the chips that he wanted. <laughs> I didn't know. In my defense, I didn't know. I didn't know that he had specifically apportioned out a certain amount of those yeah. chips. And they were also the ones that I like. <laughs> well, and then on an even better note, as soon as you came back downstairs, Noah, first of all, you admitted it right away, which yeah. I would not have yeah, done. Yeah. So I, I, proud of you for that. And then Noah immediately had the correct response of moving the chips far away. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I repent of my selfishness. <laughs> and you offered them back, which is, again, not what I would have done. But I, I, I. All right. so, so now that we've established... The incident of 2023. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, okay. We've established um, the holiness of your union through the potato chip sharing. Yeah, so back yes. to the leadership. I'm glad she is fed. That's yes, what matters. Indeed, indeed. Um, well done. Uh, that was so funny. Oh, my word. Okay, so just in this in this whole... everything Everything we've been saying, and I think... As you were talking about, even the way the studies start, they start by asking questions. What have you been thinking on, praying about, that's been on your heart? Mm -hmm. the, the, it does not start with, as the leader, teacher, facilitator, whatever title we want to give ourselves, mm -hmm. I'm going to just speak a lot of words at you mm -hmm. because you don't know, and I know, so let me tell you everything I know. Mm -hmm. It starts with, I, I need to hear from you. What is God doing in your life? How is God active and moving? What are the things you're wrestling about? They have questions about what are the things... Maybe you're not experiencing God as active and moving and you're really, it's a hard time. Let's hear that. And from that, okay, then then here's some options out of the text and go, right? But as you said, and, and Holly, I love as you said, the, the ability to say as an adult, whether it's to a child or to another adult or anything in between, I don't know. That is a phenomenal answer that mm -hmm. I, I, I think we so often want. No, here's the answer that answers the question. And so it's fine now the end done and it's like, and sometimes there are certain questions that we really can do something of that nature and i think there's a lot of questions especially a lot of the whys it's really hard to say this is why right this is precisely 100 this is the reason why and i think having that open-endedness and the open-handedness and the humility to say i don't know is really important it's really really important and i for as you said there are some people who might hear that and I think it's actually a really small, small, small fraction of people who would think less of a person for saying, I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean this in an unkind way, but if they feel that way, that says more about them than anything. Yeah, for um, sure. For sure it does. And, you know, for the people who I think a lot of people really appreciate and value and respect the honesty of, I don't know. You know, in that study, with those confirmation youth looking at Noah, one of the kids' takeaways was very much a, 
a, a not happy with God question wrestle. Mm. And it's a real question. And it's not, there's not a good, easy, simple, happy answer to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can we honor that question, give it space and not try to say, well, you just have to trust God. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that. Right. Yeah. That's just putting your head in the sand, typically speaking. Yeah. As, as, mm-hmm. as opposed to that. Something that I was going to share was just, um, so I've started the journey of, of teaching alongside Noah and mm-hmm. teaching independently myself. And um, I've been studying, I've had the, the gift to be able to um, study under his father, my father-in-law as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that he taught me um, that I think that is so important when it comes to children and it is so important in the room, and one of the things that makes the room work um, is that when you walk into the room, the one big ask that you have of yourself is that you trust everyone in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does it mean to trust the people in the room? And the other thing that I think is so important is that any room that I walk into as the teacher um, or just just broadly if I'm in the room just with and beside Noah is the idea of I can be confident in saying that I am not the smartest person in this room. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Um, and I think that, you know, much to what Noah is saying, like there are some people who feel that they need to walk in with all of the answers to feel like they are the smartest person in the room. And if they are not, then either they're not good, doing a good job, no one will take them seriously, whatever that might be. Um, but the the real balance and the real test and what really makes the room work is to walk in with the humility to say that I am not the smartest person in this room and I trust all of you. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I the, the Trust me, exactly. I trust every person in this room. Because I think if, if people come into this room, they had to take the time, they had to commit, whether it's 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, oftentimes it's three hours, but it could be even longer than that. They are committing this amount of time to showing up in this space. I am trusting that they are showing up here because they chose to show up here, mm-hmm. not because they were necessarily forced. People can get out of going to anything if they really want to get out of going to something, right? Or they could just not come. It's it I've is perfected hard. that art. <laughs> it, it, it is an art. I'm really good at it. It is an art. And I have a story about having, yeah. Ooh, okay, um, we should talk. Right? So like, it, it, oh, I want to remember. Um, okay. Yeah. So it, there, there it, it is. And it is harder to come to something than it is to not. So if you show up, I'm trusting that you are here with all of the best of intentions. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going great in life, mm-hmm. but I am trusting that you are showing up here genuinely and with good intent. So I, I have, I have, I'm trusting that entirely. Now, it, and what can come forth from that is so many questions, right? But I, I, that trust is is so foundational, fundamental, um, and I think so often we 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 struggle with with trusting each other. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, you said, um, what was the second thing you said again? I'm not the smartest person in the room. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Because I would want to suggest, right, on that exact point, even when someone might believe they are the smartest person in the room, and maybe whatever that looks like objectively could be true, maybe it is. I promise every single person, I am not the smartest person on every subject in any given room, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So there For are sure. other people in this space who are going to be more knowledgeable, smarter on some many topics of things than any one person will be. So the idea of, well, I know I'm so, whoever thinks, I know I'm so smart, therefore give me a break. Mm -hmm. People are going to know stuff that everyone has no other idea about. And Mm -hmm. so the idea of that being the barometer, that being the measuring stick, therefore I can teach because I know more than everyone. You don't. On certain things, I promise. 
Yeah, and, and Holly, I want to return to something you said related to all of this too, which is that when you say, I don't know, or you know you're not the smartest person in the room, and especially if it's your children, but I think it could be friendships. I think it can be colleagues. I think it could be anybody that um, I'm in a weird season. I'm increasingly having people come to me that I don't know that well and are asking me some fairly significant faith kinds of questions. And I, But I'm thinking back now to the parent who maybe is just trying to shepherd their kid for the first time. And, and I don't know what your experience has been in church entirely. And, and I think similar for you too, is that there's a sense in which we need to study God's word for the purpose of somehow proving to God that we're willing to study God's word. You know, that, that they're like, we just got to do this discipleship thing. We got to grind it out kind of thing. But as opposed to being the kind of person who is increasingly growing in our own sense of faith and life and kingdom to that, then when these encounters randomly come up with our kids or just leading studies or whatever it happens to be, you're increasingly equipped to help lead some of those things. I just, I don't think that many parents and grandparents in church communities have even been encouraged to be taken seriously, that they probably have capacities and abilities, and then given the tools to grow in scripture on an increasing basis so that they can just begin to naturally lead their families, their kids, have conversations with colleagues or whatever. I, I just, I remember the first time I ever taught in a class and all of the information I knew about everything that I had ever learned in any context of life was on about six slides is what it felt like in this first class. And I had about an hour to teach and there was literally no opportunity for the students to ask a single question outside of those slides without me saying, I don't know. But I did then have to go through the rigor over years and years and years of engaging, not because I was proving something to God, but because I'm like, you know, I just, I really don't know much about this stuff. And there's serious things going on in life with our kids and our grandkids and people all around us. There's just so much pain and sorrow and suffering. For a second, I thought you meant your grandkids. And I was like, what fictional grandchildren uh, are you talking about? You have three years left before I start reducing your inheritance by 10% every year post-grant. I'm an unmarried Christian woman and I'm 21 years old. I've already failed. You're not getting grandkids from me. My window has closed. That's true. That's true. Yes, I know. We're we're already starting to address the spinster conversation with you. Oh yeah, for Uh, sure. But does that even some of that rambling make sense? Like I just don't, I think... Once people have the safety of saying, I don't know, then what happens from there where we're going to start learning and growing, not again to prove something to God, but because we want to be the kind of people that can help shepherd the people around us in some ways. And I need to be shepherded by people when I don't know. So, No, I think so. I It resonates so much because you had made a comment of not feeling like um, many parents or grandparents feel like they're equipped to, Mm -hmm. um, or even feel like they're encouraged to become equipped. No, because they're coming, they're spectators for an hour on a Sunday morning. How exactly do you get equipped in these really difficult questions when you're being talked to for 20 minutes and you sing a couple worship songs and go home? You just don't get equipped. Fine, but you don't get equipped in that scenario. It is, you know, it's something that, it's one of the things that I think it breaks my heart whenever I hear it, which is somebody saying, um, you know, like, no, I don't feel like going to a study. Um, I'm I'm not smart enough for yeah, that. Yeah. Or I don't, mm-hmm. like, I don't, you guys are the scholars for that. Like, I'm I'm okay just, just you know, being, you know, I don't understand and that's okay. Um, and not that it's a, not that it's a journey to understanding because it's God. We will never understand. He mm-hmm. is far too big. Right. But um I think just beginning that encouragement is so important and just starting and I think that's something that does start from a leadership perspective 
um, whether that's from the leader that's behind the pulpit or if that comes from the leader of a small group, community, whatever it might be, um, of just beginning that encouragement to say that it's okay that you can go deeper and mm-hmm. that you, um, you know, that it's not that you're not smart enough because that's that's not real. Like, I feel the Lord— the Lord did not say that we should come to him as children if he didn't believe that that children wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah, that's good. And I think it, in that point, and, and, and to appease the question too, is is when, when thinking about how do we engage people with this or, or what are pathways to learn, I think being curious and asking questions and thinking about who are the people in our lives who have taught us things, who have shown us things, who have, have helped us to navigate hard questions— and when kids come with questions, okay, who do I have in my community that I can go to? If I don't know, who can I talk to that does maybe have some more knowledge? And then what are resources that they have? What are things that they know? Where do they go and get information? And and so I, I think that that's uh, an important puzzle piece as well. I think, especially though with the family dynamic, mm-hmm. specifically talking in that context, I think personally speaking, what, what was so helpful for me, just uh, from a parental, from a child perspective, to, to my parents, my parents unconditionally loved me. And I never had any question about that at all. Mm. The, and they always took an interest in what I took an interest in. Mm-hmm. Did my mom like minor league ice hockey? <laughs> <laughs> when I took an interest in it, she did. Knowing, and she started, knowing your mom, that, yeah, that's really funny. The fact that she would have sat at any rink, indoor or outdoor, is that remarkable. She brought me to dozens of games as a child and would mm-hmm. sit there. And, and you know, they we didn't have a ton of money, paid money for me to go to these, watch these games and for me to scream my head off and lose my voice. And <laughs> literally, I mean, I literally lost my voice so many times at my like, hockey game. But just, you know, they took an interest when I had an interest in something. It didn't, it wasn't that they loved that topic. So here we go. But it's like, no, if, if you really care about this, if you're passionate about this, I love you. I want to encourage you and support you. I'll bring you to this thing. And so that when other harder conversations came up about different things, I felt I could go to them, that I could trust them because I knew they loved me and they cared for me and they supported me. And that was never in doubt at all, any way, shape or form. Did and she I, put did she put up with the <clears throat> smelly their hockey gear smells worse than any other athletic equipment gear ever. I you never, combine the leather and the sweat and everything of hockey gear. I can't imagine what your mother put up with. I never really played. I was just went to games and watched. So oh, okay. thankfully, so, if she didn't. So have this to is pre adolescent. Like the, you, you were not fully through puberty with all oh, like no. the grown man sweat that happens with hockey oh, gear. No. Those Yikes. locker rooms in high school were some of the worst locker rooms you could step into. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> but it, so I think that that is part of that when we talk about the family piece. And yeah. I'm not trying to you know, or, or say something because I think on some level we talk about it is so that piece is so foundational and important. And just really the degree of which I think how parents can honor their kids, Mm -hmm. um, because we talk about, you know, honor your father and mother. And I think what does it mean for parents to honor their children? It was middle school. Um, The Patriots, uh, I'm from Massachusetts. The New England Patriots just won the Super Bowl for the very first time, 2001. First ever ever Super Bowl ever in the history of the The New England Patriots were one of the worst organizations historically. No (laughs) success before Brady, Belichick, and everything. Michigan boy came. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Exactly. No, I'm Ohio State. Anyways. um, (laughs) But we, yeah. So, uh, so, oh, one, they win the Super Bowl for the very first time, right? And I am over the moon. I am so happy. I'm so excited. Middle school. My middle school teacher, I had one teacher named Miss Lightfoot. 
Miss Lightfoot. That's a great name. Oh. It sounds like a hobbit name. Um, she, she had a heavier foot. Anyways, um, <laughs> but, uh, just in the discipline aspect. Right, right. Um, yep. Yeah, she was, anyways, she was very nice. Though. Could be. And she tells us after the Patriots win the Super Bowl, if anyone misses school to go to the parade, it will count as an unexcused absence and it will affect your grade. Ooh. And she says Whoa. this to all of us. And I'm going, I like start to have all these feelings. And I'm going, I, I might like break down crying because I want to go to this parade. This is, football was like the world to me. Like I'm an 11, 12 year old kid. This is mm-hmm. ever, like, this is, I can't even imagine my favorite team who's never had any success beats the greatest show on turf in a dome, right? <laughs> I can't even imagine this moment. And I come home and I tell my dad and my dad goes, we're going to the parade. I'm taking yeah. the parade. My dad doesn't like love football. He's not upset. He's like, I'm going to bring you to the parade. Mm. And I said, but dad, like this will affect my grade. He's like, it's a grade. It doesn't matter. You're in middle school. Also, (laughs) (laughs) I don't care what she says. I'll write you a note. And I said, but she said it would count as unexcused. He goes, I'll say you were sick. And he goes, and I say, no, dad, it doesn't matter. She says, and I go, what is she going to know if you were sick or not? How is she going to (laughs) know? And I go, really? And he's like, yeah. I went, oh, yeah. How would she? Okay. So. Yep. That that was something that you and mom absolutely would have done for me. 100%. So here we go. I go to the parade. It is like one of the happiest moments of my it has life. To be incredible. It is like negative 15 that day. It is so cold. We are out there from like 6:30. So we get a good spot in the line outside. I'm just standing on this rope. I am exuding happiness more than I could possibly imagine. This is like one of the top 20 days of my life to this day. And dad is just there and he's just enjoying me, enjoying this moment as I am blisteringly cold, couldn't be happier. There's nowhere else on the planet I'd rather be. Next day, I go to school. I have the note in my hand that says I was sick the day before (laughs) and I have to bring it to Miss Lightfoot, who's also my homeroom teacher. And I hand her the note and I am scared because I'm like, this is going to affect my grade. There's no way. I know what dad said, but there's no way. I hand her the note and she goes, you were sick. I said, mm-hmm. She goes, did you go to the parade yesterday? Yes, good for Miss Lightfoot. And I said, what does the note say? You did not. Mm-hmm. You, were you, you were what, like 13? 11. Oh 11? Gosh. You just rolled That's without? That's iconic. What does that the note say? It. What does the note say? The note and she said goes, I was sick. It says you were sick. And I go, hmm. And I just walked off. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my respect for you just skyrocketed. That was awesome. I knew my parents loved and supported me yeah. to no end, that they would do that for me for something that really mattered even when it could have. And I think in that vein, are we doing that for our kids, for our grandkids, for our nieces, for our nephews? Do we for have that community. kind of... Exactly. Are mm-hmm. we loving and supporting and encouraging them in that way and whatever they're passionate and excited about so that when they aren't coming and talking about my team winning the Super Bowl, but when they're coming and talking about, hey, this thing about God, I don't understand it. I know this person loves and cares about me. I know they have my heart and my passions in mind, and I know I can trust them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and on that, we do actually have a a scriptural passage that we were going to be looking at, and I'm aware of the fact that you guys have some time constraints. So do we want to move that direction? Do we have any other final thoughts about all of this before we well, I th- yeah, and I think it's a subject that we should probably stay with in the months ahead to some degree mm-hmm. because that is one of the things that, for the people that have been listening to Deeper Magic, I think there's there's a bit of an intrigue of a, of a different kind of pathway moving forward 
But then there's the understandable paralysis. So what do we do? Like, how do we start living yeah. a different kind of way of faith that is a bit more familial, a bit more communal? Like, that, that's just uh, different. So I think we have some ideas about how that's going to help take some shape in the next uh, few months. But yeah, now would be a good time. I know when we were starting to talk about leadership just in general last night, I, I think, Holly, you actually sang the passage <laughs> that, we, that, that we should talk we're about. We're not going to ask you to do that. That's Thank so, you. Yeah. Nobody and, wants that. So, and, so the, well, Noah does want that. <laughs> but I Noah do. gets to hear it all the time. <clears throat> yes, so. yes, yes. It's okay. So what, so what is the passage that we're going to look at a bit to at least maybe tease out some different dimensions of sacred leadership? It was from First Samuel? First Samuel, uh, verse tw- or First Samuel, chapter twenty-three. And is it one Samuel or First Samuel? I never know. Like I hear it different ways. Because Noah, you say it as one Samuel, right? Mm-hmm. Does and, it matter? Well, I don't know. I'm just so curious if it's you're one the Samuel. one with the degree. <laughs> yeah. I know. There's one person with the degree. One person got the degree. I'm just building trust. Unimportant. No, I'm just I'm building trust with you right now. I don't know. I don't know if it's first or or one. Good yes. answer. Way to be a good sacred thank leader. You. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Okay, good. So what's the story? Because I have Actually, to admit that... Actually, he just lost credibility for me. I, well, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ouch. All right. So so the spinster and I would like to go through the story with you <laughs> That's my name. We've it been is, trying to come up is, with yeah. something for and, me because Caleb is Hebrew boy and yeah, you're like no, I, Dr. Pete or yeah, whatever. And, and, and I'm the spinster. And there's Aww. there's boys like lining up that will want to no, date you. So that that's why the spinster com- comment is, is ironic. Where so are for, they? Well, we just haven't found him yet. So first, uh, Sam, but th- it, there are plenty of boys who, when you're serving coffee in the coffee shop, let's just say that they linger for a little no. bit. It's just that you don't know them yet, but they're happy to linger. And That's okay. Yes. You're, okay. okay. <laughs> so first Samuel 20, this is a story that I have to admit I'm not super familiar with. So do you want to just take who, which one of the two of you wants to take us into the details of this? I, I can start. Sure. Uh, so, First Samuel uh, twenty-three is the story about David. Um, this is while he's still being pursued by Saul, so he's not king yet. Um, Saul is still actively trying to kill him, um, and he and his men are hanging out. and um, And David gets told that the Philistines are attacking a city called Keilah, and so David looks and says, "That's a problem." And he goes and inquire, inquires of the Lord. Um, to ask whether he should save him, save them. The Lord says yes. And then his men come to him and say, we're terrified. We're going to die. Absolutely not. It's a hard mm. no from us. Mm. Um, and so David's response is to go back to the Lord and ask again, should I go and save Keilah? And the Lord says, yes. And so ultimately David goes and he saves Keilah. Um, and there's more to that story and more that happens afterwards. Um, but kind of looking at um, just verses 1 through 5, basically, um, is going to be the bulk of of that element. Okay. Do we want to read that? Sure. That'd be great. David was told, the Philistines are raiding Keilah and plundering the threshing floors. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack those Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go, attack the Philistines, and you will save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the forces of the Philistines? So David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Go down at once to Keilah, for I am going to deliver the Philistines into your hands. David and his men went to Keilah and fought against the Philistines. 
He drove off their cattle and inflicted a severe defeat on them. Thus David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Mm. Interesting. Dang. Mine says, in verse 5, mine says, struck them with a mighty blow and took yeah. away their livestock. Yeah. It's, so it's always pointing to, there's so many different aspects or pieces to the passage. You know, one of which is, right, Saul is still king, as you said. David has been anointed, but is not yet king. Saul is trying to kill David. David and his men are hiding. One of the things that, that's helpful when looking at any passage in Scripture is to know the meaning of people's names. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't necessarily know every meaning of every person's name or place in the text, and yet we do know a lot. Um, and one of them that's really helpful to think about um, is the name of the very first or one king. Um, sorry, we're in one Samuel, our first Samuel. Sorry, couldn't resist. That. Yes, no, that was good. Bible but number joke. Yeah. Um, so uh, the very first king uh, for the Israelites, and he's king right now, is King Saul, right? So we have King Saul, Saul's name. Saul's name. Anyone happen to know what Saul's name means? Well, you're asking the wrong people because we just studied this like three days ago. That's great. Yeah, it's ask, inquire. It's ask or inquire. So we literally have king to ask or inquire. So for people who are not familiar with this idea, that within the language itself, the name is not just the parents hanging out and saying, what should we name our kid? And and, and look through a baby book of 500 names and pick one out. There's something far more substantive going on with any name about which we read in the text. Yeah, so an element of the name is going to give um, an idea of what their identity is, what their purpose is, how they engage with community. Um, and what you'll see is with a lot of um, a lot of the people in the Bible, um, if we look at, for example, when uh, Jacob's wives are naming their sons, they're naming them about what happened in that moment. So it could be what's going on in the community. It could be um, a need of the community. It could be what's going on in their personal life. Um, And when the King James translators were first um, translating the Bible, um, what they would do is they would sound out the words, and then they would would write them as we see them now in English. So Shaul became Saul. Um, And I can pass it back to you as far as that. Well, exactly. And to your point, there's no capital letters in biblical Hebrew. So there's nothing to necessarily denote this is proper noun place. I mean, hmm. one could know it's a noun because it's the subject of the, the verse or the sentence. But the idea that it's capitalized letter, therefore I would know this is a name, just a name. It's like, well, it's a name, but that name is a word. And and as you said, Shaul um, is the name that we'll translate as Saul in our translation, which literally means to ask or inquire exactly right, to ask or inquire. Meaning the children of Israel have said, and the reason they have a king is because they've said, we want a king, right? We want a king. And God told the people all the way back in the wilderness, you do not need a king. You don't need a king. You don't need a king. You don't need a king. And then God in God's kindness and graciousness and generosity, and maybe a little bit of humor says, so you don't need a king. And when you want a king, here's the qualities and traits you should look for in a king, right. um, which is like, you know, classic God of, of you shouldn't do this. Classic I know God. you're going to do it. And so here you go. You know, yes. when you do the thing, you probably really don't need to do. Here's to try to help you out. Something new. Okay. So here yes. we go. Love mm-hmm. it. Here we go. King Saul. King Saul, king to ask or inquire. Meaning, I think oftentimes when we're looking for leaders, be it of, of, a, of a church, but in a secular context, even in a familial sense, I think we so often want our leaders, the people we look to, to have every single last what? Answer. Thank you. And right, the very first king is going to be named not king. No, all the answer. answers. Yes. King, yeah. ask, or inquire, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning the notion that within this person lies every last bit of answer, every piece of wisdom, all of the direction and knowledge that I'll need for life. 
they need to ask or inquire. Well, I'm part of what I love about that mm. so much is that it also implies that within the leadership, there is like a required element of both hearing and learning in all of that. Because mm -hmm. if you can ask a lot of questions and not listen to any of the answers, but I kind of have a feeling that they're not going to have their first king ask inquire and have it just be, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and not listen to any of your answers, but that it's, I, I'm going to hear and I'm going to listen and I'm going to respond accordingly, taking it seriously, and I'm going to learn. And that's what makes it so fun because you see with Saul, one of Saul's problems was that Saul, Saul wasn't super great at asking. Mm -hmm. um, really? but, even, but even more so when he would ask, sometimes if he didn't like the answer, he didn't always listen or he might go ask somebody else. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a, a, a good example of that is when um, he inquires of the Lord, he receives an answer, he doesn't like it. So what does he do? He goes and he asks a witch. Yeah, mm -hmm. the witch of Ender's story is an yeah. amazing story. <laughs> He's like, you will give me the answer that I wanted to hear. Exactly. Um, but that's that idea of what does it look like then to ask, but also listen to the answer that we're receiving um, really puts us into that First Samuel 23 passage of what does it look like to actually act that out? Mm. Um, and can we say it alongside, because I think it's such an important point. Uh, I was introduced to the phrase intellectual humility somewhere along the way. I don't remember exactly when, and, and sort of its pairing or, or its, its twin of intellectual honesty, meaning that intellectual humility is that you carry yourself in such a way that you don't have all the answers and you know it. And, and that maybe even how you're thinking about a given situation probably is missing something. Hardly ever are we are any of us living in a one-to-one -one relationship with the objective truth of the universe. And so intellectual humility is just to recognize that. But then to your point that you just said, Holly, and especially in a leader, whether it's a parent, a grandparent, an organizational leader, whoever it is, to then have intellectual honesty that when you hear an answer, and it probably is something worth paying attention to, even if it's not something that you like, to, to then be willing to change your mind according to what the evidence is or what, what is a better. So to have the humility to know you don't know it all and have the honesty to say, I'm going to go ahead and change the direction of my thinking or this relationship or my friendship or whatever it is. I, that trait in leadership, I think, is so critical, though, that, that dual um, component. And in thinking about this moment in that context for David, it, we don't know exactly what David wanted to do or maybe what his preference would have been in this moment. Yeah, we yeah. know that Saul is out to kill him. We know that he and his men are hiding in Judah and they've seemed to found a place where they are safe and secure. He hears that another part of his community is being attacked. What do I do? Because, right, if I go and save these people, then Saul might find out where we are. And if Saul finds out where we are, then in trying to save and help my community my king might come and kill us. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not just my life on the line, it's the lives of all these other people who are trusting me and following me. So th this, is, this is a very hard moment if I'm David, what do I do? And, and to be fair, you know, uh, David and his men, Saul finds out and he goes and tries to get him. Like th that is precisely what happens. It's not that the men's fears are unfounded in any way, shape or form. That's the, the later verses are, are, are the men... Saul finding out and trying to go in and get there, right? And, and one of the things too about about sacred leadership and, and you were talking about you know intellectual humility, humility and intellectual honesty. David goes and inquires of the Lord. When it says that David inquires of the Lord there, um, in verse two, it's literally David is sawing with the Lord. Hmm. It's really the word sha'al to ask or inquire. So David is sawing, 
as Saul isn't Sauling. You know, David is asking <laughs> inquiring as King ask and inquire isn't asking and inquiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because just to clarify that a little bit, because the name, yeah, like we kind of touched on earlier when somebody's name is in the text, it's not like how it is in English where my name is Anna and my name means grace. In the text, my name would just be Grace and that would just be what people would hear. And so like if your name was Chair, it wouldn't be another word that meant Chair. Your name would just be Chair and that is what everybody would hear. So Saul's name isn't actually Saul. Saul's name is Ask and Choir. Exactly. And that's mm-hmm. what just what everyone would hear. And, mm-hmm. and if one's reading this, you would see David is Sauling. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, King Ask Inquire isn't asking inquiring, except for sometimes when he does, but then he always goes and, we're not always, then he goes and seeks a witch at Endor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here, David is the one asking inquiring. David is the one who's literally doing the thing of the king's name. Mm-hmm. And do, are the authors, do you think they're actually setting up this plan where it seems like the Hebrew people love to have sort of these little plays and words happening all throughout the text like this, where the one who should be asking inquiring is not but the person who was described previously as a person after God's own heart is the one who's actually doing it. I like I just would miss this stuff unless we walk through it like this. Exactly. Oh yeah. No, I, I think I think absolutely so. I think we're seeing a um, we're seeing an image of that shift from Saul to David that's happening. Mm. Of this is what a king. You know, I'll give you the idea of what your king should look like, and here's a man who's doing it. Fascinating. Yeah. And okay, as we talk about sacred leadership, right, as we're talking here, the the prophet who anoints the very first king, king to ask inquire, King Shaul or King Saul, we'll say, but literally king ask inquire, the prophet who anoints him is who? Samuel. Samuel. Samuel's named 1 Samuel 1. And when Samuel gets named in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah will name him Samuel saying, because I have asked the Lord for him. Oh. Mm-hmm. So we have the prophet asked inquired of God, anointing king to ask inquire. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the sacred leadership that we're being asked here and invited into to ask and inquire. Yeah. So this is not a leadership strategy we're talking about. We're talking about one of the, the the very core characteristics of somebody who would be shepherding anybody is is demonstrating this quality about them. Exactly. And it's not okay. Exactly, exactly. And we're talking about sacred leadership as as you were saying Holly, right? It's not only I ask and inquire of God. David does that and he gets an answer. But then David's men come and say, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. You heard from God." That's nice. And we might all die if we go down here and do this because it's barely safe here. If we get found out, what's going to happen? So at that point, does David tell his men, you unbelieving little losers, how dare you? (laughs) That was right from the Hebrew. It really was. How dare you question the word of the living God? How could you do that? You unbelieving scoundrels. I thought you guys were good people. I thought you believed. Is that what David says? No, of course not. No. No, he doesn't seemingly rebuke his men at all in that moment. He goes and does what? He asks again. He asks again. David Saul's a second time in this Mm. passage. David goes again and asks and inquires of the Lord. And when David does that, does the Lord come down and rebuke him? Ah, it's fascinating. Mm -mm. The patience there. Well, and I think too, like there's an element because in in Christian culture, the idea of doubt, which is what this could be read as, is the idea of like David doubted what the Lord told him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of doubt gets held in such a such a damning way. It really does. Um, it really does. And it's... Fake it till you make it is, is one of the phrases for sure yeah. in and, Christianity. And the idea that if you had doubt, you're sinning. Mm-hmm. Like how dare you even doubt for a moment? But something, and not to go too deeply into the idea because it's a whole study, but when Eve is first doubting whether or not God really did say, when when the serpent introduces that idea of like, well, did God really say... 
Has she eaten of the fruit yet? No. No. So is sin in the garden yet? No. No. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so the idea of, like, in that moment, Eve doubting was not... Sin had not entered the garden yet. Where Eve, where Eve in that sense um, made the mistake that David doesn't, is that Eve, rather than saying, I'm not sure, I'll go ask God, mm-hmm. Eve turns back to the person who gave her the doubt in the first place, the serpent, that representation of doubt, mm. um, and says, I'm not sure, what do you think? And it's just doubt upon doubt upon doubt. Um, whereas we see David in that sense saying, you know, I've heard from God. And he says this, and his men saying, we don't want to do that. Mm. And so he goes back. And he brings his doubt to God rather than just bringing his doubt back to doubt. Yeah. So you're suggesting that it, the doubt isn't the issue here and that God even would invite us to come back to, to him with this doubt. The, the issue would be where you go with the doubt, not that you have doubt to begin with. Exactly. Hmm. And I think one of the one of the big dangers in doubt, you and I have talked a lot about this, especially as we've been doing this podcast. This is heavy. This is a lot of information yeah, that we are bringing to people. This is like, these are not light things that we are saying even though a lot of times we will say them in a lighthearted manner these are really heavy topics and and we've had a lot of conversations about like who are we to be saying this mm-hmm. who are we to be putting this information out there how how are we the ones who are supposed to be doing this and and none of that is bad none of those questions are bad and and having those moments of like whoa, am I supposed to be doing, like, am I qualified to be doing this? Am I whatever? Those moments of doubt are not bad at all. And actually it has brought us into doing this and saying these things and having these conversations out of a place of real humility because what that has brought us back to over and over again is is bringing it back to God Mm -hmm. and being like, we we're not really the ones having the conversations here. We're not really the ones bringing the information here. But I don't know. Does that does that? No, it does. Make I, sense? I think because when I was describing earlier it's that I, that I work quality. for some people that I trust in leadership, what you've mm-hmm. just described so well is, I think, some of the reasons why I trust them is I would know them to be the kind of people that one ask questions that we're mm-hmm. talking about, two that they're open about their doubt. But that three, they're also willing to then honestly and earnestly pursue better understanding, better with like just trying to find. So how do I understand? They have that that beautiful combination of I'm not afraid to be honest with you that I don't know everything. But then they also demonstrate this characteristic, but I am going to pursue as well. I'm just not going to just sit back on the sofa and eat Cheetos and just let my world collapse around me. I'm going to yeah. at least pursue. And that combination of rigorous pursuit with honesty and doubt is somebody that I, I love to work for because you, you just trust them. They both, they do come to answers and solutions and thoughts and comments that are helpful while they're also saying, I don't know everything. Yeah. I think especially in that vein of, of, of exactly what you were just saying, Anna, you know, to me, one of the things that I also think about is, am I open and, and willing to accept that there's a really good chance that on some of the things I really believe or think I might be wrong? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can I remain open to the idea that I might be wrong? And am I correctable? I think it's so much more important to be correctable when I'm off the mark than it is to always get it right. Because the odds are I am not always going to get it right. I'm going to mess things up. And I'm not trying to say to be flippant and therefore it doesn't matter that I got something totally off. No, that really matters. And will I be correctable when I recognize that? And can I be open mm-hmm. to that continuously? And can I also speak in more measured ways? You know, we were we we went to to 
um, we saw two uh, people um, we went to two different church services yesterday morning. And one of the things we were remarking um, in one of the services that we so appreciated was someone saying where they could say, this is true. Hmm. They instead said, this is what I think, mm-hmm. Hmm. which yeah. I just thought, I just like, and, and you noticed that distinction, Holly. And I just thought like that was such an important distinction and yeah. how, and, and that piece is, that matters. That little language flip there matters so a much. lot. It, it, and it makes a huge difference because when people are told, this is it, mm-hmm. the end. Mm. Yeah. yeah, agreed. I, because if somebody is willing to say, sometimes in my class I'll say, this is my best shot. I don't even say it as often as I need to or want to. But as soon as I say, this is my best shot, or this, I had a professor, he was so unbelievably intelligent. I think he had two doctorates by the time he was 35 and and maybe one from a European, I think it was from Oxford and Princeton maybe. Wow. So it was something along those lines. And he would open up his mouth and you're like, I don't even understand like how you know all of what you know about theological history right now. But he would often say, but this is written in pencil. And that was his version of saying, this is my best shot. Meaning that I am willing to erase what I'm saying right now, should evidence come along, that would change my view about that. So I'm everything that I give you, and he was brilliant and, and life-changing in so many ways for both Hallie and me. And yet the fact that he was willing to write it in pencil it was fascinating to watch. An incredible person. Mm-hmm. All right, so what else, we have a few minutes left. What else can we learn from this passage? We probably can't get into all the different dimensions of it, but I think what you've just teased out here that we keep sort of circling around about asking and inquiring and humility and all of that clearly is in this passage. Absolutely. It, the, it, the dimension of sacred leadership, of asking and inquiring, and, and I love you said, right, it, one could view this passage as David doubted after God told him. And God doesn't come back admonishing him. God doesn't come back slapping him down. And as you talked about in the garden, right, we have a beautiful example in Exodus 4, when Mo- well, Exodus 3 and 4, when Moses is at the burning bush and he brings his doubts to God, right? And God says, what's that in your hand? Well, my rod, throw it down. It's a snake. Here's the doubt. And so it's a whole much larger conversation, but we get another clear picture of God will work with us in our doubts. It's not as if God is saying, you doubted, how dare you necessarily. There's actually a lot of passage where God's right there and wanting to engage with us with these questions, with these doubts, with these things that we're really not so sure about. And here we go. David comes to God a second time. And when David actually comes and asks inquires of God the second time, God just doesn't copy paste what God said the first time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He actually will provide him with more. Huh. There's more confirmation. In in um, one of the translations that I have, um, it will say, you know, when he asks, shall I go and attack these Philistines? It'll say, the Lord answered him, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Great. Okay. Um, when he asks the second time, the response um, he gets from there is, go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which I feel like is a different. That's a different answer. That's a much more. I, I yeah. personally would feel more confident in the second answer. <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, for sure. That definitely is a different answer. Yes. And I think just the um, the grace and the generosity of God in that that very much to know his point that he doesn't go like David, come on, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. why would you even ask me again? Hmm. He goes. Absolutely. And also here is more confirmation. Mm-hmm. So why did God do that? Like, well, and, and maybe you have a follow-up to this first, but just so you know, this question is hanging now in my mind. Is there something that we even learn about our relationship with God that, that the repeated return to, I, okay, I, I think you hear the question in that, I want, but I want to revisit that in a second. Anna, you have a yeah, thought? Yeah, I just have a quick thing that isn't that, but a, a separate thing that 
what you said last night about the metal nut in a tin can in my head. That I'd been doing that for the last two minutes. So I was like, I have to say this or I'm not going to hear anything else. Um, but also just that when we were talking about what David and his men might be risking by going to help these people, mm-hmm. that in that part of an aspect of sacred leadership is doing what is right for the community or doing what is right for others even if it means like monumental risk to yourself. Okay, yeah, we have a couple different things to talk about here, yeah. That's, I think, the answer to your question. Okay, so say more. more. And I don't want to make it, oh, did you? No. I don't want to make it, this is the only way to think about it, so I'm not trying to suggest that, Mm -hmm. you know, pencil, um, as I love Mm -hmm. that, uh, Mm -hmm. writing in pencil here. Um, One of the ways that I understand this, or one of the ways I think it could be understood is, you know, I love as you read it, and those those translations are perfect, right? You know, God saying, yeah, go down to Kila, talk to the Philistines, They'll save them. The mm-hmm. second time, go down, attack the Philistines. I will give them into your hand. And what I, one of the ways I think about this, and again, in pencil, is that God is actually, it's almost the other end of the spectrum, isn't seemingly, to my, for how I understand this, disappointed in David for asking and inquiring a second time. I think God might be so overjoyed that this man listened to his people and that while he heard from God, he took their voices and their hearts and their concerns into account and returned to the Lord. Hmm. That he's not in such a hurry, that he's not so zealous to the point of for God, that he would disregard the humanity of the people he is being given to lead. Hmm. That actually, no, if I'm really going to lead this people, I need to hear them. I need to take their perspective and their hearts and their thoughts into account, and I can come back to God. And, and God's going, oh my gosh, you, you listened to these people, even mm-hmm. though I spoke to you, even though you heard my audible voice, you listened to these people. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. And you came to me with what they had to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Into your hand. You know, uh, it, it, to me, it almost seems, and that's where, you know, to your point, I, I think God's going, like you said, another step in this second time. And I think it's honestly... David honoring his men as he's also trying to honor God and God honoring David honoring of his men as David's also trying to honor God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just this, inc- and I think, because I think we so often think in leadership, no, if the leader hears from God, it's the end. It's done. You go and do it. What does it really mean to take into account the people that you're being given to lead? Mm-hmm. And David does that. Not every time, but here he really does that. Yeah. Let me, so let me go back to something I asked you close to the beginning, Anna, of this whole thing in light of what Noah was just talking about. I think we both know that the way that it tends to work within Christian organizations and Christian churches is what Noah just said, is that the leader is the one who either had the vision to plant the church or was given something, you know, had there's the, the leader is the only one that gets the burning bush moment. Yeah. N- nobody else really gets to hear from God in that way. I sometimes laugh with my ministry students as like, so why is your calling like any more sacred than the psych majors that are coming into my class are that like you, did you get the burning bush and they don't? (laughs) So we, so we have some fun with that. But the point of that piece of it is that the leader so often is seen as the one who does hear from God. And I will say then, even the way leaders are trained are often, so now you need to persuade the people through some mechanism, mean or program to buy into what you've already heard from God. And it sets up this weird dynamic where the leader is heard from God and then the leader has to persuade them. They don't take the people seriously at the end of the day. Right. There, there isn't this give and take. There isn't this hearing back and forth. There isn't a, a mutuality between leadership and people because it's only the leader that hears from God and then has to bend the arc of the people towards what they believe that they've heard. 
I would imagine that that's not the kind of leadership you, you would want to sit under, right? Versus Shockingly. Being yeah, I mean, like, I, I my contrary about that. personality aside, no, that is not at all the kind of leadership that I would want to be under. And I think part of what I have run into in those circles is that then there's also not room for the people to hear from God. Huh. Then it's that the leader is the one who hears from God and communicates what God is saying to the community also that what God is saying does not only apply to the leader, but because the leader heard it, somehow it means the same thing for everybody in the mm -hmm. community and nobody in the community can hear anything different or they are hearing wrongly. Hmm. Um, and that is so like, cause my relationship with God is different than your relationship with God is different than Holly's relationship with God is different than Noah's relationship with God. And Noah can hear something from God and I can hear the same thing from God and it can mean completely different things for both of us. But having known you, Noah, for a good chunk of my life, like I, I trust the advice that you give and I trust that when I come to you with questions about things, you will give me a well-rounded and honest answer. And if you don't know, you're going to tell me that you don't know. And because of that, you are somebody that I turn to with spiritual questions mm -hmm. and with life questions in general because I know that if you hear something and I hear something and I tell you that what I heard was different, you're going to say, okay, what does that mean? And then we work that out together instead of you just telling me what it's supposed to mean. Anna, I, and, and I think that is, that is so beautiful. And thank you. And I, and it's fun I, to watch I, you at a little bit of loss for words. That was really, <laughs> oh, that doesn't that happen often. No, it was great. <laughs> and, and one of the things I so appreciate about you is, you will also go to multiple people. You know, yes. I think one of the things that gets to be so hard in these leadership, these sacred leadership conversations, mm -hmm. and sometimes especially in, in organizations and in systems, there's one person you can go to mm -hmm. and it's just one person. Yeah. You gotta go to that one person because that one person knows. And it's like, nah, no, 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 no. As you said, God's talking active, moving with all folks all mm -hmm. over the place. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the leader of a church or a government or whatever it is. God's talking to everyone, all mm -hmm. the folks, a lot of the time. So just this idea of like, well, I can only go to this one person and to have people, you know, you can trust for all the reasons you articulated is really important. And to know who those voices are and they are voices, mm -hmm. right? There are multiple voices that I think we sometimes can get so, well, I need to go to my pastor. Mm -hmm. I need to go to my boss. I need to go to my, whoever is the person who's in charge. Who's, and yeah, it can be good to go to them. And there's usually more than just one person. And I think having those multiple voices, this is part of the need of community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That is so, and that's what David seems to be seeing here is, it ain't just me as the boss. Mm -hmm. It ain't just me as the future anointed king. I also, these guys that are with me, their voices matter. Mm -hmm. They're not irrelevant. They're not unimportant. And if, if I'm really gonna be in a relationship with them, then I'm in a relationship with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not just, I mow them down and they do what I say. Mm -hmm. That's not sacred leadership. Yeah. And I think also the ability to recognize when you are and when you aren't in a leadership role and when you're in a situation where you might not be qualified to be the leader here and you need to give that up and let somebody else take that role. Like that is so important as well because some of the people that I have trusted most in terms of spiritual leadership are the people who are like, you know what, in this room, in this conversation, this is not, I can't lead here. Somebody else has to. And it's like, those, those are the people that I'm like, oh, because then when you do lead, now I trust you because I know that if you didn't think you could do this, you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I had an unusual experience yesterday, I'll say, after um, some 30 years of church ministry that I don't, 
I guess it's probably happened in the past, but maybe I just wasn't as attuned to it as I was yesterday as the person doing the sermon. And unfortunately, I think so many church services still revolve around that time of the sermon. And, and so people, you know, the service rises and falls in people's experience and what happens in the sermon. And, and yesterday, because I was with friends that I've been on the journey with for a bit and, and trust them, and one young woman stopped during worship. It was her, her, it was her first time back in six months at the church, and she had been away just to de- to deal with some church stuff that was not easy for her from from her childhood church. And as she was speaking during the worship time about her experience, and as she was sort of leading the way to your point, Anna, is that I felt only one part of a much greater whole yesterday in the service versus the one who was in the bulletin was sort of the featured spot. And and it was so life-giving to feel like we were all sharing in it together. And, and then it wasn't just those three or four other people in the service that I felt like I was sharing it with, but almost the entire community. And it was one of the first, I would say, healthy experiences in organized church I've had in a very long time because there wasn't this false disconnect between the assumed leader who's the only one who's hearing from God today. It's just like, you know what? I'm terrible at 10,000 things in life minimum, like minimum, I'm terrible at them. I, I, I have cultivated a, a capacity to speak in public. I enjoy it. Like that is something that I bring, but that's only one piece of the community and it's been elevated way too high in terms of its importance. It just felt really sweet to be a part of something yesterday where it was, it felt like it was shared among all of us, I think is the point. And I think, I don't know, some life would feel, I think, a lot less lonely and a lot less confusing if some of the stuff that we talked about today, like we just take each other seriously and and say, yeah, no, I'm not good at that. You you need to be the one who does that. Or well, I don't know, or I have doubts or something. It just seems like these, why don't we talk about these things more than we do? Like wh- why have we set up such a different system? Maybe that's sort of our final question for this particular episode. Like how did we get to this place? Because I think clearly we're seeing some pathways different, but maybe what are some of the things that we need to shed or the assumptions around all of this? I'll let you start. <laughs> I think I have a hard time answering that question Mm -hmm. um, in part because um, I grew up in a house where we did talk about and we did ask the questions and we did wrestle with things. And so I, you know, and I fully can understand and appreciate that that is not the vast majority of of people's reality in this country and and in a number of different contexts. And I think it's, it it has helped to to shape and form me in in a lot of ways that this was something that was nurtured and cultivated and and encouraged uh, Mm. throughout my childhood. Mm. And and it was with the example that was given to me Mm. by my parents. And so like, and my, for my sister and I, so I think that that was such a, a different way in which to grow up Mm -hmm. because it, the idea of it being not encouraged to ask questions, to wrestle, to, to be curious or the idea of, um, to have doubts and that's okay. And how do we walk with people and hold them in that and to not, and, and I know sometimes people do it with the best of intent. So I'm not saying this in a, in a flippant way, but just, you know, to not throw a verse at a person, you know, when, when they're having a hard time yeah. or when they're really, yeah. you know, h- how to really be with a person and hold them and, and just love them and care for them and not a, and you need to feel better now. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we get so uncomfortable with feelings, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think we tend to associate there are good feelings and bad feelings. And, and I think that is remarkably unhelpful. I think there are feelings that we maybe enjoy more than others and would rather have less than others. But the and, and sometimes feelings can lead to different things. But the notion of, and I think we even know it when we really start to talk about it even a little bit, but I think we get really uncomfortable with feelings. And, yeah. and, and just in the sense of, 
we know that some things that feel good doesn't necessarily mean it's good to do the things that make the things feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, whether that's way overeating, and I know this is a thing for like certain foods, I could just eat it and eat it and eat it and eat it, and I'm going to feel sick later. It feels really good when mm-hmm. I'm eating it. Which is why but, you portion out your potato chips and tortilla chips so carefully. I was thinking more pasta. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Ooh, that's fair. But, yeah, you know, this that's is, fair. Th- this is right. And, and so yeah. it's just, or, and sometimes a feeling that feels bad. You yeah. Know? Oh, did I just touch the curling iron? Oh, it's good that that hurts. Yeah. Because then right. it gets me away from actually doing significant damage to my hand, hopefully. Right. right? So like, the idea of good or bad, to try to climb out of that. And we even see in the text, I mean, it's a whole example in 1 Samuel 1. But when Hannah prays the prayer that she prays at the tabernacle in 1 Samuel 1, the prayer that Hannah prays, it says that she prays from the bitterness of her soul. Hmm. I don't think we would oftentimes associate bitter as a good feeling. Right. But that bitter feeling that she has produces a stunning, communally oriented, heartfelt prayer that is for God and God's heart in the sacred future mm-hmm. from a bitter soul. Yeah. So, And I think one of the things to try to climb out of is, you know, when we're having these and trying to hold people, engage with people in these wrestlings and these doubts and these questions, to not view that's a bad question or that's a bad feeling. It's, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that there are things to maybe try to, to really hold and, and corral people tightly with and in, but the notion of you shouldn't think that, you shouldn't feel like, mm-hmm. how, how do we engage with it? Because if it's there, it's there. So how are we engaging with it now? You know, when someone has a question, that's a hard question. It's a mm-hmm. really hard feeling. What do we do with that? But the notion of it's always going to result in, we see people sometimes have really good feelings. They love that fruit in the garden. It tasted really good. It was delightful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was bad? Well, it says that felt good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like this This is the, so things that feel good aren't always, but things that feel bad aren't like, yeah, how, and how do we, hold, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think we oftentimes go with, well, did it feel good? Did it not feel good? So there it is. It's like, right. that's just not that simple. Right. I think to another, um, another element of it as well is like, how do we, you know, why are we not asking these questions? Why are we not here? Um, I came to, um, the evangelical church, as I understand it, uh, later in life. And so I came with a different set of eyes than somebody who had grown up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and not placing all of this on the evangelical church, it I think it is across the entirety of, of Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think there is also a, an unhealthy relationship with authority and boundaries. Yeah. Um, I, a verse that I would hear thrown around a lot is that that verse about respecting authority right. and the idea that if your lead pastor says X, Y, Z, that is it. And if you question him, you're being ungodly, you're sinning because you're not respecting the authority. Um, and I think that 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 sort of unhealthy understanding of what authority is and like when we can maybe push back or when we can, you know, challenge an idea like with with. Um, with the people in David, with 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 his army, saying like, "Hey, I know you said you heard, but like we don't know about that." Mm-hmm. Um, that shows a more healthy, more healthy ability to engage with the authority figure, and for the authority figure then as well to respect the the words of the people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like that's not something that I see. A lot of it's not super um, common for sure. It's, no, yeah. no, and I think just the boundaries as well. In, um, I think kind of, kind of to what you're saying about about the feelings or about sort of pushing it down and 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 throwing a verse at it and and just really not 
not engaging, mm. not not allowing for that space to be. One more thought on this too. The way in which our, our worlds are oriented, because I, I, you know, to your point, maybe you were saying, maybe think of this, uh, Western and Eastern ways of thinking, Western ways of thinking tend to be so oriented towards answers. Yes. yes. Eastern yes, ways yes, of yes. thinking are very oriented towards questions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Old Testament, it, it's it's an Eastern book. I mean, you could argue uh, Matthew and Parsons. Uh, they for Eastern, sure are. It, yeah, it, yeah. They're, in Eastern, they're not creedal books like we've treated them. <laughs> Eastern books are question-oriented books. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they, it, it, it's question-oriented thinking, and it's it's not to say that answers are wrong. I think this is where we need both questions and answers. Mm-hmm. And I think the tension that we have is we tend to swing way, way, way far with the answers, or way, way, way far with the questions. But it's where you know, within within a Jewish context, everything is questioned, everything is examined, and to the point where it's like there can never be an answer, and there are some answers. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then we you know, on the other end of the spectrum, in in a more you know, Western church kind of conversation, it becomes very answer. But just Western broadly, it's about answers, having answers. Whether it's school, it can be secular context, answers. What are the answers? Mm-hmm. It, and it's both. And I think that's part of the, the the wrestle in this is that I think we've done a really good job societally at coming up with answers. And it's helped us get to places where we are with things, certain technological innovations that are phenomenal and beautiful. And there's questions that, that, that are also really helpful and important. And, and I think we need to hold both of those things and not, I could, it is so important to have questions too. And and everything just can't always be an answer or a quick answer either. And I think that's enough. Well, and I think people want answers so often to relieve the anxiety that they feel in life. And and, and a statement along the way that's helped me uh, process some of that is to say, well, I, I'm, I don't have all the answers or I'm not in relationship with all of the truth in life, but I am relation, in relationship with the one who holds all of the truth in life. So my, I can hit the, my, my head can hit the pillow at night and rest, not because I know everything, but because I am in relationship with the one who does have all of that. And so then pursuing these things becomes an act of worship versus an act of trying to relieve my anxiety. And the words you use, it makes me anxiety, stress, rest. I yeah. think I might have also used the word comfort. You know, it, And one of the things that I've just very, the very first time the word comfort shows up is in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, when it says the Lord God took the man and it doesn't say placed him in the garden of Eden to work and guarded it. It's comforted him into the garden yeah. of Eden to work yeah. and guard it. I mean, the idea of comfort isn't just really soft, comfy lounge chair, get to sit back and, and eat Cheetos and, and watch <laughs> binge watch Netflix, you know. I've God's comforting us to till intent to work and guard the garden. Yeah. There there's an action and a movement with comfort that might include some anxiety and stress. Like if yeah. I'm really working the creation. For sure. That there's gonna be more emotions than just Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, Anna, we've got to wrap up this episode, unfortunately, at this point, but I think much uh, much more to say. You have any good way to to wrap this up? Dang, I mean no, not really. You're usually the one who wraps it up, so I don't. I don't. <laughs> but have I started prepared. it. I started. I don't you know. forced me into the awkward introduction that I'm not good at. My my answer to that is I don't know. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. I'm tapping my nose right now. Uh-huh. Isn't that the same? Yeah. yeah, I like it. Feel it. Okay. Well, this has been the deeper magic. Uh, Holly and Noah, thanks again for joining us. Just all of what you guys bring to the table is just fabulous. So. Thank you. Yeah. So on behalf of Anna, goodbye, Anna. Bye, Anna. <laughs> we'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs> thanks for listening. Deep 
Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks. And our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there. All licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Viewable on the site as well. 